Hello, welcome to the Safe Sedation Podcast, the podcast where you find all you need to know about sedation and keeping patients safe. Brought to you by Sedate UK, and with you are your hosts, Andrea Trigo, Martin Lees, and Craig Cook. If you are a first-time listener, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss new episodes. Check out our website at www.sedate-uk.com and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Today's episode is sponsored by Medtronic MicroStream Monitoring. This episode is the second of our second series, and we're talking about creating change in sedation practice in the endoscopy unit. Endoscopy is frequently used in the diagnosis and treatment of gastrointestinal disorders. However, patient fear and anxiety related to to the anticipated discomfort of the procedure itself can limit the willingness to undergo endoscopy and in some cases affect the endoscopy's ability to successfully complete a procedure. Sedation before and during endoscopy can decrease patient anxiety and discomfort and improve the quality of the endoscopy procedure. I would like to start by a very basic question. I want to know why endoscopy is such a common and key area where sedation is practiced. We certainly have seen that over the years when we've been teaching sedation, lots and lots of students come from endoscopy departments. Why is it such a, a key area for sedation? Um, Andrea, maybe I'll take that one. So endoscopy, as you've mentioned, is ideally suited to sedation. The aim of sedation is to keep the patient comfortable, to manage their pain, and enable them to tolerate unpleasant procedures such as endoscopy that without sedation would be either not possible or very difficult or unpleasant for the patient. And and as such, the main classes of drugs at our disposal as sedationists are opioids for analgesia, benzodiazepines to calm or relieve anxiety, and hypnotics to initiate, sustain, or even lengthen sleep. Mm-hmm. And with this in mind, it's it's important to strike the right level of, of sedation that uh, that can be achieved or should be achieved that uh, that is most often used in endoscopy. And I think um, maybe, Martin, I know you've had a quite a bit of involvement with endoscopy over the years in, in your career. Anything to add to what I've just uh, said or what, what Andrea's just uh, mentioned? And more particularly, what level of sedation is is most often used in or needs to be most often used in endoscopy. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Craig. So I'm primarily a cardiothoracic anesthetist and intensivist. But of course, one of the procedures in cardiology is a transesophageal echo, which is a modified gastroscope with an ultrasound tip. Um, So the challenges are very similar. And what we find is that Um, the sedation required for uh, something like a gastroscopy, a simple diagnostic gastroscopy, is the same as for a transesophageal echo. And that that ranges from minimal uh, sedation, otherwise known as anxiolysis, which is up to two milligrams of midazolam on its own, typically, to um, 
moderate sedation for perhaps a longer procedure or a more painful procedure. Um, <clears throat> we'll talk more about the range of gastroenterology procedures in a minute, but um, I think there's sometimes a, a misunderstanding that what's required for cardiology or gastroenterology or IR type sedation is deep sedation. And um, deep sedation is really multi-drug based sedation or large doses, usually the territory of a specifically trained practitioner or an anaesthetist. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because if we're aiming for deep sedation, we off, well, we can inadvertently end up with what is basically general anesthesia, where the patients are fully anaesthetized. And that, that's a problem for those who aren't confident in managing airways or aren't trained in recovering patients who are generally anaesthetized. And just to give that a little bit more detail, um, anxiolysis is the, the, the lightest level of sedation. <clears throat> so typically two milligrams or up to two milligrams of midazolam, maybe some local anesthetic throat spray, that sort of thing, paracetamol as well. And, uh, and the patients will respond readily to verbal prompting um, and verbal commands. All their cognitive functions should be relatively maintained and all the airway reflexes and cardiovascular reflexes will still be intact. Moderate sedation analgesia, sometimes called uh, conscious sedation, that's a sort of more historic term. The, the, the term we use now is moderate sedation, um, is a combination of drugs often because together, as Craig will go on to say later, the use of, uh, say, an opioid and a benzodiazepine in lower doses produces the desired effect where the patient is able to tolerate an uncomfortable procedure, but is still um, rousable to verbal commands. And then if, if we give a, an awful lot of one of the drugs or, or an increased dose of both drugs, say, say a large dose of fentanyl and a large dose of midazolam, we might get deep sedation or deep analgesia. And, and that's, that's heading towards the territory of the anaesthetist or those who are specially trained. And it might be necessary to clear an airway, maintain an airway and even ventilate the patient if their uh, respiration is inadequate, which we will also see is the most frequent complication of sedation. I think maybe Craig or Andrea, if one of you can pick up uh, tell us a bit more about the challenges faced by sedationists in endoscopy. Yeah, yeah sure. I, I can pick up yeah. on that. I think um, in the endoscopy unit represents a very specific type of area where we need to keep in mind on one hand that we have a shared airway. And I think, Martin, you've touched a bit on that. The fact that both the endoscopist wants to use, to, to use the mouth and the airway, but also as well um, as, as sedationists, we want to use the airway to administer oxygen, to, me to measure CO2. So there is a shared airway. So that is a very specific challenge that will need to be addressed. I think another specific challenge is the fact that most endoscopy units are in remote locations. So they might not have immediate access to specialists or advanced care units if something goes wrong. So all the part where we need to prepare for possible complications, we'll need to bear that in mind if we are working in an endoscopy unit. I think as well, there's something that is becoming more evident as a specific challenge, which is patients that are getting older with more comorbidities 
and also the ability of doing longer and more complex procedures, endoscopic procedures in patients who are who have more problems. So I think that will present again new challenges for us in in sedation practice. But I think one of the key challenges has been in deciding who should be involved in practicing sedation. And I think it is intrinsically related to the procedure itself and the challenges that are being faced. So I don't know if you guys have an idea on the spread of who is actually practicing sedation. Is non-anesthetist administered sedation something common in endoscopy? My gut feeling is that it would be. Yeah, I think we can look at that. And in fact, we're not alone. So the JAG or the Joint Advisory Group of the Royal College of Physicians um, is, is well known, I hope, to many of you as, <clears throat> uh, as the, the sort of leading professional um, benchmarking um, uh, group. And there was the National Endoscopy Database, which was started up recently, and sites can voluntarily enroll into this um, database and provide data. So what do we see when we look at the sort of data that's submitted? So approximately 3 million cases of endoscopic procedures are performed annually, uh, of which the great majority, you can see on this pie chart, the 1.3 million and 1.1 million are colonoscopies and upper GI endoscopy. Uh, the, the, the sort of smaller um, wedge is more complicated, longer procedures. But most of these patients will be receiving sedation. Um, so, you know, it's reasonable to look at what sort of training these professionals need to provide this really very large volume of clinical activity and potentially uh, risk. So, um, Andrea, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that is such a good point. And I think if we look at... Um, the guidelines from the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges from 2013, and we look at the update that was issued in February this year, something very crucial um, that is mentioned is that regardless of who we are as a professional, either we are nurses, doctors, endoscopists, or, or ODPs, we all need to have specific skills. So it's a skill that is required based on what we want to do in terms of sedation and not necessarily based on um, our background. So we all need to have the same training and the same skills, the same competencies, the same knowledge if we are practicing uh, minimal or moderate sedation. And then again, if we are practicing uh, deep sedation. So if we look at these, um, what has been defined by the guidelines, we can see that there is an escalation of competencies that is required we don't need as much competencies to practice minimal sedation as we do to practice moderate sedation or to practice deep sedation. And that is intrinsically linked to the effect that sedation has on patients as it would be naturally expected. So when a patient has minimal sedation, as you, Martin, explained so well, patients will have a normal response and usually airway ventilation and cardiovascular systems are not affected. So we don't require many skills to, to practice that. But if we are already entering the remit of moderate sedation, where spontaneous ventilation 
will be affected, but might be adequate. Uh, the patient will have a purposeful response. So there's already some, some changes to, to the patient's response here. We need more skills. And if we look at everything that is required in terms of, for example, basic life support is required for minimal sedation and axiolysis. If we're talking about moderate sedation, we already need immediate life support. If we're talking about deep sedation, we would need advanced life support. In terms of specific airway maneuvers, um, if we're talking about minimal sedation, we would need basic airway maneuvers. But for everything else, we need to have competencies in the use of those basic airway maneuvers, airway adjuncts, which we talk a lot in our sedation course, supraglottic devices like eye gels. We need to be proficient as well in bag valve mask ventilation as well. So there, there is an escalation of uh, skills and competencies, and, and there is a very specific curriculum that everyone needs to go through when they receive that formal training. And that's why we've been doing such a hard work since 2014, training so many people. <laughs> so, but I think that, that is um, also what would be really important to, to bear in mind is that it does take time. So we know it doesn't happen over overnight, training everyone in your department gaining the competencies, getting the skills, but ultimately that's what, we, what we've what we been doing, trying to fulfill the need defined by the guidelines that everyone has the skills they need to practice safe sedation. Yeah, and I guess, um, Andrea, I guess another important topic to cover or, or to expand in that regard is, is the guidelines and the recommendations in endoscopy. And one of the key drivers of guidelines um, the key initial drivers of guidelines was the 1995 prospective audit of upper GI endoscopy. This involved just over 14,000 patients in about 36 UK hospitals. And the key findings included a mortality rate at that stage of one in 2,000 wow. and a morbidity rate of one in, in uh, 200 and the reasons behind this was poor sedation practice um, was identified as, as, as a frequent contributory factor for um, or in, in these uh, mortality and morbidity figures. So, Martin, again, I know that <clears throat> yeah. something close so to you been involved with. Yeah, thanks. And, um, what triggered the, the, the need for these guidelines and, and uh, the status of them? Yeah, so in fact, that triggered the development of the first Academy of Medical Royal College guidelines in around 2000, 2001. But of course, NCPOD was a system of uh, quality analysis. Um, and there was a specific uh, report in 2004, which focused on um, morbidity and mortality in uh, GI endoscopy. And it was called Scoping Our Practice, uh, quite appropriately named. So they found in 2004, having followed up from the 1995 data, that there were still appreciable numbers of deaths, 1,818, within 30 days of GI endoscopy, of, which, uh, of 136,000 procedures. Um, so that's, that's a bit under 1.5%. And 43% uh, of those had been associated with respiratory complications. And 14% of those deaths had been 
associated with inappropriate, deemed inappropriately high doses of sedation, even by the standards of the 2000-2001 um, guidelines. So we're still looking at a, a sedation-related complication of significant morbidity and mortality of around 0.5%. And, and I think, you know, clearly things needed to have improved, and I think they have. And, um, you know, this is what we are working towards. So um, perhaps, Craig, can you tell us a little bit about those guidelines? Well, I think there's um, there's some key messages from the AMRC uh, guidelines, and I think uh, the 2013 defines fundamental standards and development uh, standards, and it recommends strongly recommends competency-based formal training of all healthcare professionals involved in sedation. Then 2021 builds on those uh, guidelines and 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 tries to expand their reach and uptake. It recognizes that there's been incomplete uptake of the 2013, and it also provides an inspection template for regulators to assess and check compliance um, versus the, 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 the guidelines. So certainly um, momentum building towards a, a standard-based or a data-driven based, evidence-based approach for endoscopy, specifically GI endoscopy and sedation as it affects that. I think, Craig, that, that is such a good point because um, if anyone hasn't read these guidelines, specifically if anyone hasn't read the update from February this year, you can download it, of course, from the website of the Academy of Medical Bryocologies. You can also find it on our Sedate UK website. The latest update is such a, an easy read and it has bullet points, so it makes it very easy to understand what you need to do in order to, to be compliant. And I think one of the key aspects that is present in these guidelines and that we are asked all the time has to do with who actually delivers um, sedation. Yes, I think, um, I think uh, that the, and I think we have a slide on this, uh, Andrea, we, the guidelines for all but very brief and simple procedures is for a three-person model, which uh, comprises an operator, sedationist, a trained assistant to monitor the patient, and an assistant to the, the procedure. And then as we head for more complex or prolonged procedures, or where the patient is medically compromised or more complicated medically, then a dedicated sedationist uh, is required. So other than minimal mesolysis where an operator sedationist with a second person is sufficient, anything beyond that requires a way a three-person model is recommended. That is such, I like that table um, because it was taken straight out of the guidelines. So for minimal sedation, it is okay to have an operator sedationist. Uh, but for moderate sedation, they, there needs to be a three-person model unless it's a very brief uh, procedure, isn't it? And I think that has been a struggle. But like you said, it's, it's a trend that is improving to have someone fully dedicated to, to practicing sedation. Yeah, correct. And I think my next question has to do with the drugs. And I know you love talking about these drugs. So tell me a bit about what kind of drugs have been used and 
what is important for us to consider when deciding on drugs and doses? Yeah, so, so, so the protocol we teach uh, at Sedate UK is for non anesthetists that focuses on vietnam and fentanyl primarily. And as we see in this, this protocol slide, we start with, with fentanyl with an initial dose up to 100 micrograms, potentially half a dose if frail. Extra doses are added every 10 to 15 minutes up to a maximum, uh, if needed, up to a maximum of 200 micrograms. The midazolam, that's an initial dose up to 2 milligrams, an extra dose uh, every 20 minutes if needed. And again, the maximum around about five milligrams. You always start with, with fentanyl to assess whether there's any respiratory compromise before adding uh, midazolam or, or a second drug. And this is really the protocol that we follow and we advise and we teach as it relates to endoscopy. So that's the first uh, point. The second point to, to answer your question regards the concept of, of synergy. And this is the... Um, uh, the interaction that occurs between two or more drugs when when they are given or when when small doses are combined of several drugs that interact synergistically, each drug's therapeutic action is potentiated while the side effects of each are, are minimized because of the smaller doses used. And this is nicely explained in this graph where you see individual drugs A and B when they're given individually it needs quite a high uh, dose off to the right-hand side of the x-axis. But when they combined together, much lower doses of drugs A and B are, are needed to achieve the same effect, and thus reducing the, the amount of side effects or, or the risk of side effects related to the, the drugs uh, individually or to the drugs respectively. And I think when with this framework, it takes care of of the majority of procedures, especially as it relates to endoscopy. But sometimes we need to be um, aware or consider what we would do or what would be needed when it comes to longer procedures in endoscopy. And maybe, uh, Martin, if you want to give some, uh, some comments yeah. as it relates to the challenge of long procedures in, in endoscopy. Yeah, certainly. So... We've known for a while that these short-acting drugs um, are less effective um, when you have long procedures. It becomes difficult and unpredictable to know how much to top up with, especially after procedures have exceeded 90 minutes. So we know that midazolam has a variable impact on patients, and we know that fentanyl can accumulate. So uh, not surprisingly, in this um, uh, uh, publication from 2019, which was a joint publication involving uh, anaesthetists and members of the Joint Advisory Group, British Society of Gastroenterology, uh, found that in long endoscopy procedures, complications increased by a factor of four. The procedure rate uh, failure was up to 30%, and a common finding was over-sedation with... 33% of the patients exceeding the recommendation that they should not get more than five milligrams of midazolam um, as, a, as a benchmark amount. There was also 8% of patients who required flumazenil in that uh, study. Um, 
generally flumazenil as part of a sedation practice should not be used other than to rescue from inadvertent benzodiazepine overdose. So the intentional use of flumazenil or the inadvertent use of flumazenil is a, a problem in terms of uh, quality benchmarking. So there are two other papers that also help to uh, help us to understand what's going on. Meta-analyses of randomized clinical trials have demonstrated both in this paper and in the next paper that use of capnography can be enormously helpful in reducing respiratory compromise by detecting it at an earlier stage and alerting the team giving the sedation that we have a problem. And that was associated with reduced incidences of oxygen desaturation and needing to assist ventilation. So that's very much the thrust of the update of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges guidelines. And although the Society of, Society of Gastroenterologists and others have produced sort of gastroenterology focused guidelines, the grandfather of all of those is the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges um, guidelines, and they've been effectively adapted. So ultimately, all guidelines need to incorporate elements of the 2013 and updated in 2021 guidelines, and then they can develop on that basis. So I think that is such a good point, Martin, because, as you said, more patients needing longer complex procedures with more comorbidities associated are requiring endoscopy. And you mentioned that there's a lot of um, over sedation and respiratory compromise problems. So I think the fact that there is a problem and the fact that there's several systematic reviews, meta-analysis saying that capnography can be helpful, I think that could be um, a very strong case to, to talk about, uh, about that over the next few minutes because we're talking today about creating change. And I think that is one of the biggest changes that has happened in sedation practice over the last few years has been introducing capnography in these environments where a lot of professionals are not anesthetists. They haven't come across capnography before. So there is a learning curve into how to learn the curves. What do they mean? How can they help me in my decision making? So there is a learning curve there, definitely. And we've seen that it has been improving over the years. But once we see the use and the impact that capnography can have, it's just really difficult to not use it, um, especially if, if we already have it available. I think one of the biggest challenges uh, that we have in capnography, uh, using capnography in endoscopy has been with the shared airway, I think. And, and that's the feedback that we've been getting from our um, attendees of the safe sedation course. But I would like to, to talk to you a bit about the Medtronic equipment, the Capnostrim 35 monitor, which we have been using in our training. So this is a very handy monitor that can be with the patient in the intervention room. It can go with the patient to the recovery area as well. And it will show the curve, the continuous non-invasive real-time respiratory status monitoring of CO2. It will show saturation as well. It will show the respiratory rate and it will show the pulse rate. So just the fact that we can see the curve on screen and we can have a constant monitoring 
of that of that curve and see how it changes over time that is the most powerful indicator of of respiratory compromise i think when we think about the way of administering the oxygen and measuring the co2 um the biggest problem we've been having has been uh, the shared airway, like I, I've mentioned. And that's why we've been advocating so strongly for the smart capno line with the Guardian Bite Block. So this Guardian Bite Block that is purple has a specific place to adapt to the nasal prongs that allow you to administer oxygen and measure CO2. And of course, it has uh, the space to introduce the endoscope. So it just allows for a very efficient um, maneuver in terms of managing the airway from both sides, the endoscopist as well as the sedationist. I think something really, really interesting that if it's, uh, if it's not here, I think it's coming very soon, is the OxyMask that allows you for uh, CO2 monitoring as well, and it's a mask that has these very specific holes, and it allows you to measure CO2 from the nose as well from the mouth, and these holes allows you to put an endoscope as well. So this might be another alternative as well to to allow you to share the airway and still do everything that you need to do to keep patients safe. I think before we move, move into the questions, something that I really wanted to touch on has to do with the fact of creating change, because that's what we are here to talk about. In the last series, we talked a lot about the skill itself of managing sedation and recovering patients from complications. But this series is all about creating change. and. I think it's incredibly difficult to implement change in the workplace. We've all been there to some extent. So if we think about the steps to creating change, of course, we need to understand where we are in order to plan where we're going. If we look at it a bit like a map, we need to sort of audit and understand what we have in place in terms of sedation practice. And we also need to plan and get the buy-in from people who are going to help us sustain that, that change. We need to implement the changes. And then, of course, we need to, it's an ongoing cycle of auditing, maintaining, improving, auditing, maintaining, improvement. And I think the best person to help us um, clarify some of these, to these topics is Martin, because over the last few years, Martin has been working so hard implementing sedation in his own hospital in being one of the most experienced and expert people in sedation, helping us develop the training, the policies. You've had such a big impact in sedation in the UK. How challenging has it been for you to make changes in your own hospital? And can you guide us a bit throughout through the process? Yeah, sure. I think it varies depending on the organizational culture and local champions in each of your own hospitals. But first of all, there need to be people who want to cause change. And I think the first place to start is by setting up a sedation committee. And that's actually a recommendation and actually has become a requirement of the latest guidelines. So the sedation committee should 
have an anaesthetist as part of that. It doesn't have to, but in our sedation committee, we have co-chairs. I, I co-chair with the associate director of nursing. And I think that's very powerful because a lot of the um, sedation is managed or delivered by nurses and it has to work with the nursing workforce. And of course, it's a multidisciplinary team. It has to work for the operators as well. So they have to be part of this. So what we did was we set up the sedation committee as, as the decision-making group and uh, the group through which governance and risk could be managed. Also the group through which discussions could be funneled. Mm -hmm. And it would be the responsible group to bring back problems to. So that's step one. And then it's a process of drafting guidelines. And a great place to start is the 2013 guidelines with the updates from the 2021. And your own unit can lean very heavily uh, on these original template guidelines, or indeed we can supply you with a template guideline from Sedate UK. If you go to the Sedate UK website, um, then we have a sample guideline which can be downloaded. Now, we have created guidelines rather than policies because policies in the NHS uh, uh, speak uh, are effectively um, uh, uh, prescriptive. If people digress from the policy, then it's a sort of disciplinary matter, whereas a guideline introduces a bit of flexibility. So we recognise that there is a degree of flexibility, but there has to be quite a lot of engagement. So what we did was we circulated widely the draft guidelines. And of course, many people spot things that they think are problems or issues in what we've circulated. And that's an opportunity for you to recognize and resolve those differences of opinion. And that is what I've had to do with um, respiratory physicians, interventional cardiologists, EP cardiologists, and even it turns out on our site, um, clinicians, oncologists doing bone marrow biopsies under sedation who felt that their practice needed to be supported. And, and this process uh, interfaces the anesthesia group with the nurses and all those uh, specialties where the clinicians may have a training need or may want to um, update their practices or compare what they are doing with what we're doing. And all of us need to respect the guidelines from 2013. So after that, and with wider agreement, we set out on a, a training program. And the training program is actually a massive team building exercise because it's really nice to meet people who have been sort of suffering in silence, stressed and worried. And those who have now discovered as we found on the Sedate UK courses, that by perhaps using the synergy, like Craig described, of an opioid with a benzodiazepine and using both in lower doses, this can be particularly helpful, particularly for things like upper GI endoscopy. So um, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a good process, uh, training together, training with the multidisciplinary team and bringing all the professionals together. So that's a, a, a great thing for the organisation. And then I think you have to pilot the new practices. It's quite a big ask to go straight in from one day where there was an established process to a new process without actually introducing it in a gentle way. So what we did was we piloted the new regulation, the new guidelines in our hospital for two weeks in two of the EP cath labs and, and used 
recognized validated audit tools for operator satisfaction, patient satisfaction, and captured any side effects using the World SIVA, Society for Intravenous Anesthesia, side effect um, and morbidity and mortality um, audit. And then of course, that audit needs to feed back into the cycle so that you can adapt your guidelines as you start to roll out the implementation more widely. And then there's a sort of monthly or quarterly governance um, meeting within the sedation committee to just bring back any complications or concerns from the teams. And broadly, that is how we have implemented change, which has resulted in the additional staffing in, in our cath labs with recruitment, which required business cases to make sure we had safe staffing and also um, to the budgets for training, because, of course, 50 nurses needed training. And that's an ongoing commitment. So it's not a one off cost, because as per the guidelines, staff need to refresh their training every two years. And it might be that it's better to develop an in-house training course, mm -hmm. uh, which represents best practice. Anyway, Andrea, I think that's probably covered three years worth of, of, of activity. You make, made it sound so easy and, and quick, but like you said, it took three years and a lot of buy-in from different people to agree the policies, to agree who does what, to agree the numbers of extra nurses that would be higher. So it is a hard process, but like you said, we need to start somewhere and maybe setting up that committee where you have the input of several heads thinking about the, the what needs to be done is that step number one. In the meantime, maybe one of my first questions would be about the capnography. How was it um, in your workplace, Martin? Was there any resistance to introducing that or were people generally open to the process of, because I'm mindful that if I'm a healthcare professional who is incredibly busy, maybe. Um, I know, I think once people have seen capnography, they can't unsee it, as yeah. you say. And it's quite hard to, go back to what people were doing before. And as I, I think we say sometimes in our training, anaesthetists, it's been a minimum monitoring standard in anaesthesia for 25 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. And most anaesthetists, even if they do sedation, would not do it happily without capnography. It is our favorite monitor. And we're trying to broaden its appeal to people who can benefit from it most. Yeah. And especially if people are... Um, gaining confidence with sedation or they're being asked to do things which perhaps they feel a little uncomfortable with. It provides another piece of reassurance that the patient is still breathing and that mm -hmm. they haven't gone too far. And equally, if they have, they'll be in a position to rescue the patient much sooner without causing harm. Yeah. Which, as we saw in those meta-analyses, is, is, is not an infrequent occurrence. Mm -hmm. I think there is um, here a, a very good question. And the question is around the recommendation for anxiolytic and moderate sedation for low-risk patients, ASA 1 and 2, whether the three-person care model receiving low-risk procedures, um, if that's going to be like a standard recommendation, having three people 
No. So anxiolysis, uh, anything up to, so local anaesthetic, topical anaesthesia, and up to two milligrams of midazolam, an operator and a trained uh, nurse and sedation trained nurse is considered acceptable. Yeah, and the problem is with moderate sedation. So the moment we go into moderate sedation, we do need to have the three person model business. Correct. Well, I think, yeah, and, and if you don't have the three-person model or, or if the surgeon or the, the operator decides not to have a three-person model, then they need to be prepared to explain why or justify why yeah. they made that, that decision. Yeah, I, I think that is a very good point, Craig, because that, that's how they word it, isn't it? The guidelines are just that, guidelines. But if we don't follow the guidelines or what is generally accepted then, of course, we will need to be um, having to justify that. And Jack is just clarifying that the three model is their standard. So I think it is the gold standard. And whilst a few years ago we would encounter a lot of staff really struggling, wanting, uh, <laughs> knowing that their bosses or their managers wanted us to give sedation and then go and help the surgeon these days, it tends to to happen less and less, which is really good. Yeah, and I think the the other the other part of of Jackie's question there, um, would you recommend capnography for such a standalone community endo resource? I think the twenty thirteen guidelines, as it relates to to capnography, was you you if you try and paraphrase the the um, intent of the guidelines. Regarding capnography, it was you could use capnography. The 2021 guidelines are more that you should use capnography, and probably the next set of guidelines will be mandatory. You must use uh, capnography. So, again, there's definitely been a trend towards um, mandating uh, capnography for, for these types of procedures. Yeah, and I think Professor Sneed, who chaired the 2013 guidelines and who has joined us before, has described capnography as a developmental standard from 2013 because it would have been a very big cost to introduce all at once. The training wasn't in place and uh, it was more important, I think, to get some guidelines implemented that people could become familiar with. But now capnography, you know, is widely available. The costs are more reasonable and the benefits have been well demonstrated in the more recent studies and systematic reviews that we have demonstrated. Yeah, and, and then following on from that same question, receiving more than five milligrams of drug, I imagine it's uh, midazolam here. So again, that would contribute to over sedation. And if we think about lack of titration plus lack of capnography, it's just a very good combination for over sedation and complications, isn't it? Yeah, correct. The quality benchmark for a fit person under about 70 years of age is up to five milligrams of midazolam and up to 100 micrograms of fentanyl. And for a frail or elderly person, it's up to two milligrams of midazolam and up to 50 mics of fentanyl. And, and that these, these are guidance benchmark dose averages. So I think these would be sensible representative doses for standard gastroenterology procedures.
And I think um, just before we go, there's something that has come out very recently. If you are looking at wanting to improve your capnography skills, there is a new game that you can download. So you can download a game from the App Store or Google Play. Um, and it's called the Airway X game. And again, it's just a fun way of practicing your skills. You can simulate uh, sedation and then see how the capnography changes. And then if you do something and you intervene, you can see whether that has had a good impact on the patient. So that might be just a fun way of developing your knowledge and skills as well. Thank you, Martin. And thank you, Craig, for joining us. And that is all for today. Thank you for joining us. We will share all the information about this episode on the podcast notes. There's a new episode coming up soon. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. And you know you can find us on www.sedate-uk.com and on social media. Please feel free to message us directly if you have any questions, feedback or comments. Thank you for listening.